the 16 or 17 years we've been doing this, we've only had one decline. This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I've met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the elder planning counselor designation and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. Hi, and welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. This is Jason Watt. Uh, today's episode is a life insurance episode, pretty hardcore, uh, good foundational life insurance stuff. As a result, our CE credits will be uh, good for life insurance in all provinces, and that includes Alberta, where it's life only, no ANS credits for the Alberta folks today. Uh, FP Canada, this will be good for a financial planning credit. And IROC, this will be good for a professional development credit. If you are in Alberta, I know you're probably thinking uh, you're just coming up on your deadline for ANS credits. We have a, an extensive back catalog of courses that you can browse through to go find ANS credits. Uh, if you go to businesscareercollege.com and follow the links to the podcast, you'll be able to see which ones are good for accident and sickness credits. The color for today's episode is blue. The color for today's episode is blue. Okay, in this episode, I'm joined by Jeremiah Renner. I've actually bought life insurance from Jeremiah, so this is sort of a funny uh, interview to have done, but uh, he did a great job with it, of course, as you would expect from what you hear in this interview. And I really, uh, I learned a ton here. I found it just good to revisit this uh, sort of foundational discussion around life insurance. I think uh, Bob, my father, will end up listening to this episode and quite enjoy it. I think he and uh, Jeremiah would agree on a bunch of things, and I would wager that sort of Bob from about 1985 would get along well with uh, Jeremiah here as far as their approach to the life insurance business. I thought it was really good to hear from somebody who takes, I would suggest, a very professional view of life insurance. Uh, notably, Jeremiah said he talked about things like maintaining a relationship with the insurers, maintaining a relationship with his clients. He talks in here a little bit about some trends in underwriting. I was really surprised to hear him talk about his history with claims, where he's only had, uh, as you'll hear in the uh, interview, only one claim really go in a completely unexpected direction. And it really sounds like through no fault of his own, somebody really tried to line things up to get a claim paid that should not have been paid. So uh, yeah, lots in here. Uh, following the interview, we'll chat a little bit about some of the regulatory aspects of what Jeremiah discusses in here. Okay, I'm here today with uh, Jeremiah Renner. Jeremiah is a financial advisor based here in Edmonton, uh, both life and uh, mutual funds licensed. That's right, Jeremiah. Can you tell us a little bit about your practice? Thanks, Jason. Yeah, we um, we are a family middle-income-based practice uh, dealing with the planning, the insurance, and uh, investment components of growing wealth and retirement. And this is exactly what I find interesting about having you on today, because I feel like we haven't had a lot of people on to talk about just like fundamental insurance cases. And I know you have a good background with uh, insurance. I, I've dealt with you directly on that front myself. I'm wondering if we can get started with a discussion about how you decide what insurers to do business with. Well, we're, uh, we are independent, so we do have contracts with 15 or 16 different insurance companies. Uh, and the job is to you know, stay on top of all the changes and available products through all those companies. Uh, we generally try to track down a combination of best value for price, 
balanced underwriting, uh, you know, acceptable variances in when people are applying to get them at standard or preferred ratings. And then also the longer picture of convertibility. I know before my time, there was an issue with a lot of companies selling cheaper products that had no conversion or renewing abilities, which is not the case anymore. But uh, when I'm looking at a family and we're looking at the longer term needs, which is generally more of an estate or a small legacy, we want to make sure that they have options for permanent insurance that will be cost effective and profitable for them. So when you say balanced underwriting, uh, I know some folks will say, well, if the underwriting will go, I'm going to send somebody there. But can you talk a little bit about what that looks like? Like, do you stay away from insurers that will relax their underwriting standards too much? Or how do you view that? Part of the insurance track that we take is that when we're dealing with the individual clients, we're doing that pre-needs assessment. We identify strengths and weaknesses in their applications. Uh, as an example, some lend, um, some insurers are more favorable or easier on uh, diabetics, as an example, whereas other companies are a little bit more punitive when it comes to any sort of diabetes or uh, smoking would be another one. Some companies have leniency towards smoking and or mar- like marijuana use. Others haven't quite followed suit. So we have to look at you know what the client needs and find the best um, the best fit to get them the best price and value. That makes sense. Um, and certainly those are a couple areas. You mentioned diabetes, you mentioned smoking, marijuana use. Those are areas where underwriting has changed quite a bit. And, and I think for the most part has gotten more liberal over the last four or five years. Is that fair? Definitely. Where have you seen underwriting tighten up over the last four or five years? So actually, I think the preferred underwriting has tightened up quite a bit with a number of companies where standards seems to have um, loosened up as even in with height and weight indexes. The, I think the majority of the tightening has really been around um, family history. I think there's a lot more understanding now that family history is a real factor more so than before. And even maybe the ability to identify those family uh, genetics and or hereditary conditions uh, we're more aware of it, so it's become more uh, relevant to underwriting. I'm curious about that. This is some wild speculation on my part, but I wonder if there's some relationship there where we're underwriting more for that family history, maybe knowing that there's a little bit of anti-selection risk on the other side with people able to get like their 23andMe, but not not even allowed now to disclose that to the insurer, right? So. I wonder if the insurer is kind of trying to strike a balance there between lack of genetic information and knowing that the client maybe is in an information imbalance. But that's maybe my conspiracy theory. I may have to put my tinfoil hat on for that one. I, I'm not sure how to, how to address that, but I think more the, uh, uh, the point is that we are more aware of what is ailing our families and parents, whereas before it was, you know, passed away from natural causes, that doesn't seem to be really a listed thing anymore. It's more of a passed away due to heart conditions or heart or cancer, of which we're able to identify way more numbers of kinds. And yeah, so I, I think it's just more access to information is being uh, applied where they can access the information. That does make sense. And certainly, um, I think actuarially, there's a lot more attention given to that, right? I, I do buy that. I think there's a legitimate, like, grounded argument for that, notwithstanding my conspiracy theory. <laughs> now, you mentioned this, uh, the, the attractive conversion features that are available today. You've been in the business long enough now that you would have clients who have, who had, like, family needs when they got started and would now have graduated to those permanent needs. Can you talk about some of your either challenges or wins with conversion to permanent? The biggest challenge is always um, preparing the client for the cost. Someone who's been paying, you know, $35 a month for a half a million dollar policy for the last 20 years, and we burn through the period where they no longer really need the income protection or the 
mortgage protection. And we get to the point where they may want to carry an extra 100,000 of insurance for the next 10 or 15 years, but take 50,000 of permanent into retirement and into the longer picture. And recognizing that the cost, you know, for a 30 year old or a 435 year old differs from, you know, a 58 year old. Um, and that that cost now will go up three or four times for a fraction of the insurance. So we're always trying to talk about that. We uh, really quite enjoy the the new requirement of the letter of direction, or sorry, the, um, the reason why letter, sorry. The reasons why? And we, we took that literally in our practice. We physically write a letter on letterhead explaining what we did, whether it be a replacement or a placing of a policy, what the reasoning behind it is, and what the future plan is for that. Um, saying that we're going to run this policy for 20 years or 15 years, convert a portion of it. Um, the expected costs will be, you know, in this range, uh, all that kind of stuff, just so that the clients are not struck with sticker shock when we get there. A little bit of uh, conditioning, so to speak, for what's coming up the pike. That does make sense. And I know people that uh, are not a huge fan of the reasons why, but I think the reasons why used properly uh, really can help not just as a, an explanation for why something was done, but almost as a, and I don't want to present it this way, but almost like a sales tool. Yeah, I agree. I think that um, we try to run a really transparent and clean business in the sense where we sell people what they want or what and what they need. And when we are able to define that in a paragraph, I think it really helps with the, persistency of the products and the understanding of the clients uh, and the willingness to carry it for a long time and be part of a plan. I think it just helps reinforce the, uh, the need for insurance and then the need for continuous insurance through their lifetime. If you had, let's say, and maybe this is uh, something you're not going to have at your fingertips, but let's say you had 10 clients who were all coming up roughly over the next year to that stage where you're going to move them from the half million dollar or million dollar term policy to, you know, a, a modest permanent, maybe a little bit of term to carry, like you're describing, to carry them through. Uh, how many of them would you expect would do some conversion? Um, I think as a base, uh, a f- probably a 20 or 30% were, would be on track. Uh, and that percentage actually would go up um, based on the number of contacts we have with them over the years. I think um, my goal as a as a, an advisor is to contact those clients and not just, you know, hey, happy birthday or, hey, it's been five years, just let you know you got 15 years left on the ticking timer on your policy. Um, we do try to inquire and take notes on, you know, lifestyle changes um, and adjustments in work, uh, all those kinds of factors so that we're involved in there. We make the changes sooner rather than later. And that the more frequently we're in contact with those clients and interacting with them, the higher, much higher likelihood that they will follow through with the plan as the plan evolves uh, to the point where I think we could probably say it would be in the, maybe even the 70% range that policies issued in the last 10 years are still on track of the plan in some way, shape or form uh, to be a partial conversion and or insurance beyond beyond the original term of the policy. Now, as far as maintaining that contact with those clients, so you do have a good feel for what's happening in their lives, what's changed. Do you have a system for that? Is it email, phone calls, letters, texts? What do you have here? Um, so we, we have a, a system for sure. Uh, everyone gets a personalized email uh, on their birthday. Uh, handwritten, which is a little bit time consuming, but as part of my morning routine as I'm drinking my first coffee or three. Um, we've set annual renewals for um, last contact so that uh, the calendar will pop up and it'll show me all the different names that I need to phone today and be in touch with them. Uh, I find that um, while text is more convenient, um, it's probably actually more effective than email at this point. I think email actually is probably the least effective because 
people will get the email, they'll file it away, they'll deal with it later as they're dealing with priority, other priorities, and then it never gets really responded to. Text seems a little bit more immediate, but as a business person who doesn't want to live uh, with his phone in hand 24 hours a day, we really shifted to phone calls, um, manually phoning, which is time consuming, but also has quite a bit of uh, stick to it when you're, when you're dealing with clients. And it also gives us a chance, even if it's a five minute conversation, just to touch base and, and have that contact. Do you have, do you like, email the client to book a phone call or you just pick up the phone and call them? Honestly, I just usually pick up the phone and call them. Uh, if I leave a message, then ask them to give me a time to call them back when they're available. Uh, I generally have an idea of whether my clients are able to take calls during the day or if it's the evenings. But a lot of times we'll spend a full work day working and then calling in the evenings to touch base with clients. Um, part of the business that we run here as well is that we try to have as many contacts or sorry, touches with the client being insurance and investments. Uh, it always gives us something to talk about, whether it be rate of returns or or whatever else. That makes sense. Yeah. Good to have some ammunition for those phone calls, right? Definitely. So it's always nice to have something to talk about, even if it's uh, innocuous. <laughs> that, that's true. Uh, now, circling back to uh, dealing with the insurers, your sort of choice of insurers, you mentioned premiums and underwriting in here. Uh, again, you've been in the business long enough that you would have claims experience, both uh, good and bad, I'm sure. Does that play into your, like, are there insurers, and not naming any names here, but are there insurers that you've essentially blacklisted because of poor claims experience, anything like that? Um, I find that having been able to deal with most of the major Canadian insurers that no one's been outright blacklisted, uh, obviously I have my go-to companies that I've developed over time, but um, part of my process is still to evaluate each individual case and line it up with the best available companies. And uh, definitely there are some differences between the companies and I have my preferences in different systems, especially with the shift to e-applications. Uh, I'm a little bit old school in the sense where I like to go through and build trust with my clients. Part of that is going through their medical histories with them, which I know some advisors aren't a big fan of, but I find that uh, getting the inside scoop on that medical uh, information allows me to not just guide them to a more seamless application process, redirect them to an appropriate carrier uh, when we go from, yeah, I'm perfectly healthy to, but I did have that heart attack three years ago. Um, that becomes a, you know, a saving of time by going to the appropriate carriers. Uh, so I'm not a big fan of the carriers who have eliminated the medical evidence questions done by the advisor. That seems to cut me out of the loop and we end up putting clients through, or I end up going through the process of getting all the medical information anyhow, then not needing it. So we, we tend to try to stay with companies that allow us to ask all the medical questions with our clients in order to um, stay on top of the, of the process. It is interesting because I do run into a lot of advisors who, just as you suggested, would prefer to have telephone underwriting, do all the medical. Um, and I think there is a balance to be struck there in the sense that I'm always a little murky on where the E&O responsibility lies, for example, if something goes wrong when you've used telephone underwriting. Ultimately, it's still the agent who services and sells the policy. I, th I think the bigger concern for me is not so much the uh the you know because we take such a painstaking step-by-step -step process through we're, we're in document uh i think that's not a, a concern for me i think the bigger concern in this day and age is more the securing of the medical information and the notes afterwards and um i know in having dealt with orphan clients and with other uh, book purchases of blocks of clients getting those notes and or finding old applications um, you have to be careful about the information that you use and, and how it gets available and where that all goes ultimately and god forbid a uh, you know a privacy breach or a um, uh, ransomware or some sort of cyber attack on on your platform would be just an you know event of magnitude <laughs> 
That's yeah, that's the one that nobody can take right now and becoming increasingly common. I know you, um, your MGA has some tools in place to help you with that. I'm sure you're right on top of that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's front and foremost with our, uh, when we do our annual, annual reviews, for sure, that's a, that's a topic on the agenda of how things change. What are we doing to roll the punches and continue to guard information? Perfect. And I do, I agree with what you were saying previously, where you want to get the, the right insurer for the first application. The, the worst thing you can get here is a decline. And then the second insurer, even if they would have underwritten the condition, the original condition, they look at the decline as a, as an unfavorable result. Is that a fair comment? Yeah, I think uh, even if there are insurers who don't concern themselves with previous declines, um, I think the the idea of this is where the advisor had guided me and it was wrong <laughs> is how the decline comes back and it it does shape the relationship a little bit. Uh, even when you preface it saying we're going to try to do this to get you the best rate. And if it doesn't work out, we have a plan B. That that does help, but ultimately, no one likes to have the the word no used to them. So, would you be then willing to just accept maybe the premium is going to be whatever five bucks a month more, ten bucks a month more? But we are more confident that this is the right insurer to deal with right from day one. Is that sort of how you think about that? Yeah. Um, again, if I sat with a, a client and, and we came to that conclusion where, you know, a standard under, underwritten policy through company A is $40 a month, but the guaranteed issue or simplified issue uh, is $50 a month, we build a policy at plan B, the company B. And if the, com- you know, the client is adamant that they want to, then we'll go forward with a uh, an application to that first company to go for that preferred or, or standard underwriting. And if it comes back, it's positive. We cancel the, the other policy. Otherwise we have something in place without the decline on, on file, just because it does declines do tend to um, either complicate or limit depending on the reasons for the decline and future insurability options. And on the, uh, just, you bring up the simplified issue or guaranteed issue policies this is an area that's gotten, I would say, substantially more generous over the last decade or so. Yeah, uh, there's it's opened up quite a bit. Uh, there's a number of companies that now offer standard underwriting through Simplified Issue. Um, the concern is, of course, the less medical questions you answer, um, the higher the risk of there being something that's missed. So there has to be that that balance and, and trust in the company that they're not going to come back and ask for additional information or they're not going to glean information from an outside source that wasn't asked for in the application. So there is there is a little bit of concern in the sense of when they ask less questions but give you the same rates that there's going to be a trade-off down the road of potential higher de- declines of claims um, or you know issues at time of claim. And what kinds of things would a client show up with where you say, I'm going to just default to the simplified issue or guaranteed issue? Uh, So definitely, um, you know, uh, history of cancer in the last uh, five years, uh, heart attack, stroke. Um, I work with uh, Down syndrome uh, families, families that have Down syndrome um, people in there. So anyone who obviously falls into that category would be limited in their options uh, down to two or three carriers. And that becomes an automatic simplified issue um, opportunity. Generally, it's the big, it's the big critical illness claim style issues, and a lot of the hereditary um, conditions. So not so much hereditary in that the parents had it or the siblings had it, but more so that they've developed, you know, MS or Parkinson's or things or Alzheimer's, those kind of conditions. Some carriers don't ask those questions on their simplified issues. So you're, you're paying a higher premium, but you're able to still get some sort of coverage for them. Excellent. Now we've chatted a fair bit about uh, medical and uh, family history. What about lifestyle exclusions? What do you see happening here? Uh, I think uh, for the most part, uh, lifestyle exclusions 
uh, are limited that I've been dealing with have been more employment related. Um, handler up at Syncrude in Fort McMurray, the offshore oil well driller, um, you know, working off the, the, the Horn of Africa where all the pirates and the dangerous lifestyle is. Uh, when you find out what one of these clients gets off the plane, gets into an armored vehicle to get to the helicopter to get to their work site, chances are good you're going to need to go to a company that's less concerned with um, with those kind of occupational risks. Um, and then the actually the one that that is surprising is more the uh, dangerous hobbies: rock climbing, mountain climbing. Hella skiing, backcountry skiing, um, the sport where you ride the skidoo up the side of the mountain to see how high you can go. I don't know what that actual event is called, but yeah. I'm not sure if it's higher lining or, but yeah, those kind of hobbies, they, they pop out of the woodwork in the casual conversation because they're not traditionally what people consider to be relevant to insurance. And in those cases, um, you know, we have to go back and review our, our options to see which companies ask those questions, which ones have more favorable ratings, or if they're going to go with exclusions. Um, and then present that back to the client, being that you can pay a higher premium and have it covered if we go through this carrier, uh, or have it excluded at a lower rate. And if you elect to no longer do that in the future for a few years, basically give it up, that we can reapply to have the rating removed without affecting your insurability. It is a tough one. And I know in Alberta, you run into a ton of that, right? To sort of like working class folks whose hobby is to take the sled out to the mountains. and Yeah, and the, the opportunity, we have all these mountains that we can go and uh, ski off the main runs. We can do, um, uh, you know, hella skiing as an example, or, or cat skiing, where they take you up the side in that, uh, that track vehicle and you ski beautiful powder. You're the only one for miles. And, you know, generally it's avalanche country and things like that. So there's definitely a high risk and a lot more access to us here with, the, with all the, the wonderful nature that we, uh, we have at our fingertips. Um, now, what about uh, service from the insurers? Do you, does this matter so much to you? Like what sort of annual documentation gets sent to you or your clients? Do you, do you get fussed around this or is this sort of uh, like, if it happens, it happens, but I'm really more concerned about the, the beginning and the end with an insurance policy. Uh, well, I'm less concerned with, um, with what gets mailed out to the clients on a regular basis. I mean, most insurers are pretty standard in that you get an annual summary uh, just stating that you have X number of years left on your term or your renewals coming up if you're paying annual. That's all good. I, I really do prefer, of course, when we get a copy of that statement uh, and I hope it comes in electronic in the near future because we get a lot of paper uh, for this stuff. But I like to always have a copy of what the client is looking at because uh, a lot of times the client will call in saying, hey, I'm not sure what this is telling me. And now we're limited to them taking pictures with their phone and texting it over so we can stare at the same document. But if I'm getting those those copies of documents and, and the uh, client letters, then we're able to you know help them identify what it is, whether it be a transaction history, a deposit history, a summary, a renewal notice, a lapse notice, whatever the case may be. That does make sense. And I've had that same experience myself where you get some correspondence, you call the agent and uh, the agent has no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Um, what about uh, pre-existing conditions? Anything here that strikes you? I, you already talked about the sort of heart attack, stroke, cancer already anything else on the pre-existing front that leaps out at you um i think again with just with modern technology we seem to be identifying a lot more of those pre-existing conditions a lot we, i don't know that we're inheriting a lot more nicks and scrapes as we grow and, and get older but i think we're identifying a lot more are able to categorize things a little bit more specifically so it's really important to you know, confirm with the clients exactly what it is they were diagnosed with. Um, there's been a, a, a few more than I would have expected times that clients actually aren't really sure what they have or what they were diagnosed with. 
uh, and that we tend to try to help identify with the treatment that they're taking. So that also helps us know the severity of, of what they've got. So someone with chronic high blood pressure um, who isn't on medication and the doctor said they don't need to worry about it, well, obviously that can't be a very um, difficult or a very um, dangerous high blood pressure, but it is still worth noting and, and does need to go on to the, the applications. So that does come into play again with certain companies that are perfectly fine with someone with, again, high blood pressure who's on stable medication for two or three years, it becomes a non-factor, but declarable. Whereas other companies uh, start talking about, you know, small 25 or 50% ratings. So we tend to try to shift the business to the people who are going to accept the information about penalizing, uh, penalizing this. Yeah, and the high blood pressure, of course, is a common enough one. That's a great example. Um, now, you mentioned that you haven't had a lot of really bad claims experience or there's not sort of one insurer that stands out, but have you had claims that that didn't go as expected, whether it's uh, life or living benefits? Um, well, I think in, in the 16 or 17 years we've been doing this, we've only had one decline. And uh, that actually turned out to be a very interesting and simple case of fraud on um, by the the applicant, um, the applicant, uh, and to be honest, the applicant might even have gotten away with the claim, sorry, the spouse of the applicant would have gotten away with the claim, but the circumstances were just so bizarre that it, it warranted an investigation. And that was a, a small $200,000 term policy, uh, client super healthy and, uh, pretty much a slam dunk as for a little bit of income replacement, but it fit within their budget. So we did the application, everything was good. And a year and a half later, I got a notification that the uh, a claim was being made on the policy. And when I reached out to the family, they were uh, trying to identify, you know, when the money would be paid out and if there was paperwork and the insurer uh, actually paused the payout to do an investigation because the client actually died out of country. And part of the, contract application was were you expecting to leave the country in the next two years so that obviously was in the short uh time frame after when the policy was written and it conflicted with some of the information that was disclosed in the application so when they figured out that the client had died out of country they asked for the medical records and the death certificate which not all countries um, follow the same level of care or standards in their declarations on their documents. So that document just came back as client is dead. So they did a little bit more investigation. So it was one step next to the other that finally when they got the medical file from that foreign country, it uh, turns out the gentleman had been had a history of drug use um, through his lifetime, had died of AIDS and had actually traveled home to die with family. Uh, so obviously the claim was rejected due to the monumental levels of fraud that were involved in the application and the premiums were actually returned to the spouse, which I thought was a nice touch that wasn't necessarily required. That's true. Legally in the case of fraud, there's no requirement to return premium. So yeah, I'm good on the insurer. That's a tough one because they're really probably, even if that, if that person had disclosed everything, you just would not have put the insurance in place, even if you'd gone guarantee issue. If you no, know, with active untreated AIDS, HIV, and uh, use of steroids and, and uh, illicit drugs, heroin, um, there was no way that he was insurable at that point. And we obviously would have walked away from that. But um, in, in hindsight, the $200,000 threshold was the non-medical evidence limit. It was underneath the $250,000, $250,000 medical evidence limit at that time with that particular carrier. So it was contrived or, or put together that the, the application was, the intent was to mislead the, um, to mislead the insurer. And I agree. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one, but I, I think I would look at it the same way as you do. I think I would, like that person came to me with fraudulent intent, right? You were, it's almost like, you know, you're, you're part of the mechanism that they're trying to take advantage of. Definitely. Definitely. 
So it's interesting to hear you say, you know, 16, 17 years in the business, and that's your only kind of tough claim. I, a I decline. Decline. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. All right. Well, <laughs> I'm talking about tough claims. Um, but your only decline. And I don't think that's normal. I don't hear very much of that with that much time in the business. And I know you're selling more than a couple insurance policies a year. So do you think that your your continued involvement in the underwriting process lends to that? Do you think that that helps to situate yourself better for less difficulty with claims? I'd like to think so. I'd like to think that the, um, you know, the policies we have before us are there for a reason and that they've been, we've gone through all the hoops and taking the extra steps of making sure that they will pay out, um, not just, to, you know, for the benefit of the, the families that, that require that insurance. But I think also from a reputational standpoint, um, I would hope that there's not a file at some of these insurance companies saying, you know, give, oh, this agent applied again, make sure you give it the once over because, uh, you know, he's a little dodgy. Uh, I, I would like to think that there's, uh, you know, a general level of if it's coming from this code or from this advisor that we'll, we'll look it over, but we won't, um, we're not overly concerned with, you know, um, every detail lining up because uh, because he's got a good track record, a high persistency. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you said, okay, you have had some claims where maybe you had to go back and forth with the insurer, back and forth a little bit. Can you chat about that at all? Everyone's got their their horror stories of having gone through a, a claim gone wrong or a, or even well applications gone wrong for sure. Um, the noticeable issue claim that we've had was actually a um, was actually involved in a murder case, and where the beneficiary was the uh, murderer, and so the whole process mired down and once the details were stepped in and, and forwarded to the insurance company and the contingent beneficiary was brought up to the uh, status of becoming the payee uh, and beneficiary of the policy the policy actually ended up getting pushed to court paid out to court instead and the judge made a completely different direction judgment of where the money and funds would go so in, a, in essence the life benefit was hijacked um, by the courts and paid out as per their feelings, which was not at all what we had originally done in our planning and, and in, the, in the policy underwriting. Interesting. Yeah, there's a, and I had a whole long uh, LinkedIn discussion about this late last year, but there's a, there is actually a precedent here that in that case, I assume the beneficiary uh, murdered the, the, the life insured. Correct. Right? And there's actually a, a, an available precedent where insurers don't have to pay the death benefit at all in a case like that. So at least paying it into court is a, um, a, a step in the right direction because the money comes available, but that's, that is a, an interesting result. Yeah, I, just, I thought it was interesting that the contingent beneficiary who is unrelated from the entire event was uh, some, summarily uh, removed from that process and then the courts basically redirected it as they, they felt fit. And, uh, uh, not that the court did a poor job with it, um, because there's lots of different ways of dealing with that. And the money was completely paid out as you, as you said, but, uh, uh, it was kind of a bit of a shock and a long time, uh, to get the evidences, the proofs to push it through. And of course, no one wants to on the insurance side wants to pay out a benefit and be liable for paying it out to the wrong direction. Court system doesn't move quickly, but on a death like that, especially a tragic uh, situation like that, the funds are <laughs> that much more needed. Um, so it became a real stressful period for us. I, I can see that. And you wanna be there for those beneficiaries and all that goes along with that. It's the, the case law around this is very difficult. There's a, there's a, a complex history here, as I'm sure you got to see yeah. some of yeah. Um, now, over the last 12 or 13 years, we've seen a round of uh, increases on premiums with permanent insurance, uh, mm -hmm. four or five of them, depending on the insurer you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. Has that changed your perception about where permanent insurance fits in, a, in an overall uh, plan? Uh, I mean, 
Intellectually, I would say that it reinforces the fact that permanent insurance is that much more important. Uh, when the prices go up, it's because the value of it of paying out and having some funds in the future is got a higher value assigned to it. And um, with the average age and expectations of people living beyond 80 and most traditional insurance policies stopping somewhere between 70 and 80, uh, that just tells you that, you know, gambling on your term policy and then outliving your insurance and going beyond the convertible age a lot of them will allow you to convert at age 60 or 65 but at that point you know if you're not ready to convert at that point you lose that option and then end up writing out your insurance to uh, the expiry of the policy before you expire and uh in, in investing in retirement you never want to outlive your money um, in the same sense you don't really ever want to live, outlive your insurance if it's part of your long-term plan yeah, I, I mean, I'm a big fan of having that bit of liquidity at death, right? It's nice to have that cash that you, barring some exceptional circumstance that you know is going to be available at the uh, date of death. So, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I, I don't sell large policies. Not I don't sell multi-million dollar policies very often being in the family market. We really do a, a, a tight needs analysis to fit budget uh, to make sure that they are well taken care of. There's liquidity should there be an event? And then of course, going into retirement and, and legacies that there's enough insurance, but it's balanced out with, you know, the working man wing income. And uh, a lot of times I end up selling, you know, smaller 50 to a hundred thousand dollar whole life policies or converting to that with the term riders to cover off the short term, uh, just to make it fit into those budgets and extra money then goes into RSPs, TFSAs, RESPs, or even just paying down the mortgage, that's part of the plan. So it's a, it's a trickier market here than I think in some senses than the business markets where you're able to collect 30, 40, $50,000 premium checks to do a business transaction and serve a, have a tool that's built to do a certain function because we don't have that capacity for limitless funds. I always wonder about that, about how, how easy it is to sort of focus on that that middle market, that mass affluent market, knowing that you're not going to get those thirty or forty thousand dollar premium checks, and I assume it's much the same on the investment side. It's probably mostly sort of three, four, five hundred dollar pre-authorized contributions, and you have to yeah. strike that balance against staying in touch with your clients and and actually being there for them when needed. Can you chat a little bit about that trade-off? Uh, well, I think. Um, in talking with some of my uh, other advisor associates who are in the larger markets and they're able to close, you know, three, four, uh, large policies a year. Uh, and that is, you know, the, the majority of what they do. Uh, I think they put a lot more time into those policies with the research and the development and, and the planning, uh, whereas we're able to sit down with a family and do maybe three or four policies in the same time horizon. Um, we're, we're writing um, 10 policies a month in, in general. Um, that's, our, that's our goals on a monthly basis. And so we're able to close a lot more smaller policies like that. And, and uh, while the compensation is quite a bit less, we make up for it in the volumes which helps us spread our model to selling those policies, going back, developing plans, uh, going after their investment accounts. Uh, we don't hold minimums on our investment accounts, so we are able to uh, still generate revenue with the insurance sales and still build a long-term relationship and build the, the trailers behind that uh, to help our business run where we're not always requiring to sell in order to stay in business. It, it does make sense. And I know there's that you're always striking that balance, right? It's just, uh, you know, when so much of the industry is sort of gravitating towards the, the wealthier clients, it's always interesting to see people who have made the decision you've made. Yeah, I think the, the, the way we look at it is when we've invested the amount of time we have into someone to get to know them and to get a snapshot of their lives and, and ensure their insurable interests. Uh, at that point, it's 
there's not a lot of new commitment and new work to be done in order to spread out into the next step, which would be maybe their investments or maybe into their family or, uh, and, and, and that way we're able to organically grow and maintain that relationship. And again, if, if I have to phone you every year and say, Hey, your term 10 policy has nine years or eight years left on it. Have a nice day. It's a very quick phone call. It doesn't really leave much of a, a mark. And especially if I have to phone you three or four times to get a hold of you, but enabled in being able to call and say, Hey, you've got eight years left on your policy. That's great. Your investments are doing this rate of return. You know, have you bought that house yet? Are we still going to use first time home buyers in a year? It gives us kind of more reason to talk and more to bond with our clients, which ultimately gives us better referrals and, uh, and we call it stickier business, right? The business stays. Yeah. That, that makes sense, Jeremiah. I got that. Yeah. Um, now what about relationships with the insurers that you work with and the MGAs that you work with? How important are those relationships? And you talked before about sort of hopefully not having like a black mark when one of your apps shows up. Um, what else do you do in terms of those relationships or how do you look at the relationships you have with the, with the staff at those two entities? Um, well, I, I, for any companies that I'm using uh, more regularly, I try to have a relationship with their reps and uh, I try to find go-to people at the back offices. Um, again, we're, we're looking to be efficient. We try not to burden them with random questions and things that we can look up on our own or, or find through other resources, but, but ultimately, I do like to have someone that if we have something go off the tra- rails or something pending that may go off the rails, that we're able to correct that in a timely fashion. Uh, and so some of those companies that are available out there have a very slow processing times as a rule. We, they all go through cold, hot and cold seasons where they're busy and they're not busy. But, but some of them just are, the back offices are a bit of a nightmare to navigate. And so we tend to gravitate away from those companies if there isn't significant value in writing those policies to offset that headache of getting things fixed or updated later. That makes sense. Do you think it's just a matter of not good technology or understaffed? Do you know what causes that? Do you have a sense for that? Uh, I, I don't know. I think it's, it's definitely got to be a staffing and procedures. I mean, all the major carriers in Canada are doing a fairly steady volume of business, um, even through the pandemic. And I, I don't know if it's just a focus or, or what the case may be or, or having just the right people, but there's definitely a noticeable difference between, um, between companies when it comes to the, the servicing side, where some companies are a four or five day turnaround on an address change where others are 60 days on a death benefit face reduction. Uh, and so that would make me shy away from using the latter simply because 60 days is a long time for an action, even if it's backdated to be pending and all kinds of things can happen in the meantime, including automated con- uh, contacts from the insurance companies that don't make any sense with what the changes have been requested. So you've been in the business for, quite a while. How long did it take for you to get a sense of what insurers you like dealing with and what insurers you don't? Um, no, that's a good question. Uh, I don't know that I've really changed much over the last 15 years, to be honest. I think I'm going to attribute it to being lucky enough to working with good companies right off the hop that fit that bill. And they kind of set the standard for what I expect out of insurance companies or the bar, uh, as you, you might reference. And then other companies, when they come in, will try working with them. And if they can't keep up or they can't deliver what we're getting in other places, then they tend to fall off the priority list of writing. Uh, whereas other companies have stepped in and become um, mainstays of our insurance business simply because they've they've earned that through a combination of value and servicing. So we're not, we're not afraid to, to um, incorporate new companies provided that they fit the bill and they have that, uh, um, that back office supporting them and, and product and a good product shelf. 
So maybe this requires jumping in the time machine here, but if you think back then to your early days in the business, was there somebody you worked with who sort of coached you on how to identify those good companies or was it just you did a lot of business and you figured it out from that? Do you remember what took you? Um, when I shifted into my MGA, where I've now been for the last 12 years, um, I came from a practice company that had a limited shelf. And so in moving to that new MGA, I was actually given access to a whole host of new companies, new products and training and, and things that I <laughs> took great advantage of. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the classroom and meeting with the reps, and asking the companies and comparing it to the shelf that I knew really well. And when things lined up, I expanded uh, by basically just asking flat out, what is your sweet spot? What is it that you guys do that nobody else does or that you do better than everyone else? And took notes. And uh, to this day, I still have my binders with my meeting notes from 20, 2009, 2010 from these companies that have you know, basically said we're easier underwriting guidelines on diabetics or we, we give preferred rates. We have a preferred smoker rating if they're just a light smoker or, or whatever the case may be. And so we were able to just fill that out and build these sheets of when someone comes in with these conditions and we highlight those where the best place to send them are. And it just kind of evolves from there. Perfect. I mean, that's, that's a, like a system or a process, I think, right. That you, you actively sought out that information. Um, now what about uh, any technology using your practice? Is there any one technology you find you could not live without? Um, well, my, my CRM, my customer relationship manager software is uh, uh, fantastic. Uh, I don't think I could operate without one. There might be replacements for mine, but, but in general, um, with the volume of reminders we set to contact people and renewals and birthdays, I have to have an electronic calendar, otherwise I would lose my mind. Um, and then the other one would be my cloud storage. Uh, we shifted to a cloud where if I take the weekend off to go visit my sister in Lethbridge and someone calls me and says, hey, this is what I need, I can pull open my, um, my phone even and pull up the document and forward it to them or re-forward it to an insurer or I have access to everything wherever I am. And uh, that has been... A godsend in that if my computer fails, I can turn on my phone and, and be be working through you know 30 seconds later. So between those two, I think I don't know that I could really operate without anything else. <clears throat> Did you want to give that CRM a plug? Oh. <laughs> uh, so I, I use Equisoft, um, which is developed for financial planners, and they um, they've been really good. Um, with even with the recent changes, some of them I wasn't as happy about, uh, but they recently removed the feature that synced with my phone. Uh, so they're completely now web-based and not, uh, they don't use the Microsoft Exchange anymore. But outside of that, um, for the people who need it, they do have some financial planning tools, financial needs analysis, and those kind of things. I don't partake in any of those. I use the core, which is just the calendar, the email server, and document storage for emails. Perfect. Yeah, it's, I think it's good for people to hear that just because there's a huge number of CRMs out there today. And that's, uh, I think it's harder to get a feel on what CRM is going to work for one particular person or another. So. Yeah, I've been using these guys for 10 years. So I've been with them for a while now, which is uh, pleasant. And I, if I ever wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat, it's because I think if I might have to change CRM systems, <laughs> the sheer volume of of making the new system work uh, is terrifying so okay uh, maybe maybe CR or maybe Microsoft will throw a free month of subscription in for you there right <laughs> there's, there's always a hope <laughs> any advice you would have Jeremiah for somebody just getting started in the business um the financial business today is so different than it was 10 or 15 or 20 years ago um and i think just like technology and anything else, things have really ramped up where they're, they're evolving at a, a more quick pace year to year. And 
I honestly don't know how I would be able to start up from scratch, you know, waking up one morning, deciding I want to be a financial advisor, selling life insurance. I don't know where I would start uh, in order to function, pay a mortgage and, and, and get into a functional business. So I think the, the advice I'd have for anybody that's coming into the business is to find a mentor, find a succession plan. There are so many people that are on the verge of retirement, not just due to COVID, which I think has exasperated that, um, that fact, but finding a, a, a serious transition plan uh, that you're able to take over someone's book, take care of those people who have already trusted the system and trusting the insurance and investment uh, products that are out there, but also giving you the chance to learn and move into that position, that into that driver's seat, uh, and then take the business where you want it to. And what about for uh, folks who have been around the financial services industry a long time, maybe have primarily a wealth management focus and would like to be doing more insurance business. Any thoughts there? Oh, it, it really just comes down to if you want to talk about insurance with clients, then get some expertise. And when you're doing your reviews, take it to the next level with your client base because they're the most accessible, easy listening people that you have access to. Uh, and it's free. I mean, you're not paying for advertising, you're paying for leads. They're there, they're willing to listen. If you can value add to your clients, then do it. Um, the second option would be recognizing the opportunity in insurance if you're wealth-based or vice versa, and just partnering with someone who's willing to take that uh, business and do that, that second level of work with your clients. Uh, and it's a, it's a double win because it generates more revenue. It takes care of those clients, but it also builds a bigger moat around your clients so that someone like me who comes in and says, I can take care of your investments and I can have it sync with your plan, which syncs with your insurance. Why are you dealing with three different people or three different cooks and the same soup? And uh, a lot of people without a new sale will transfer over from three or four different brokers and banks to one advisor that they build that relationship with, which becomes a huge asset gathering tool for myself. So if you want to participate in that, then do it yourself, learn or bring somebody on to, to take care of that facet. It's no surprise, Jeremiah, that both of your answers sort of hinged on relationships one way or another. That's not, not a shock. Do you have any last minute comments for us? Um, I don't think so. Um, I think, yeah, just, I really appreciate being on the podcast with you. Uh, I've been able to listen to these for the last little while, and I really enjoy uh, the level of content and contact you have with your uh, different network. Uh, I'm very lucky that way, Jeremiah. Same thing. I have just a, a raft of people out there who are willing to talk about their businesses. And I'm, I'm very lucky, and I think our, our listeners benefit from that. So thanks, Jeremiah. Yeah. Thank you very much, Jason. Okay, we heard in there Jeremiah makes specific reference to the Reasons Why letter. And the Reasons Why letter is, of course, I'll say required, but that's not quite right. It's not required by law. Now, I'm not suggesting people shouldn't be doing Reasons Why letters, but it's only a CLHIA uh, guideline. That's the Canadian Life and Health Insurance Association. And the CLHIA has no regulatory power. However, what happens in Canada is that a good chunk of our client-facing interactions are not otherwise heavily regulated on the insurance side. And really, to keep the government out of regulating this activity, the CLHIA puts these rules in place. And this is where we get things like the reasons why letter. This is incidentally also where most of the rules for how people deal with their MGAs come from. This is where the coordination of benefits guidelines come from. And this is why I know folks on the group side will sometimes complain about inconsistencies in coordination of benefits. 
because the rules here are not really rules, they are guidelines. This is where we have guidelines that deal with how uh, SegFund's annual information folder is presented to a client. So we don't have rules as such, we have these guidelines. Now, we can trace some of this back to what happened in the United Kingdom in the 2000s, tracing back to about the mid-2000s in the United Kingdom, uh, they looked at uh, some abuses that were happening on the consumer-facing side, and they in, or they uh, launched a, a project called the Review of Retail Distribution, or RDR, and this led to a bunch of recommendations, and this was actually done at the government level in the UK. So this was a formal project of the Financial Conduct Authority, the FCA, and it led to a bunch of recommendations that were implemented in 2012. And one of those recommendations was that the sales of most kinds of insurance products had to be attached to a suitability report. Uh, now, the suitability report brings with it a particular bit of legal language here, that being a language of suitability. Uh, this is the language that generally applies in Canada to financial advisors when they make specific recommendations. However, there is some question as to whether it matters in the case of an insurance recommendation. So I would not uh, say in a black and white manner that a recommendation made by a life insurance agent uh, is necessarily going to be held to a suitability standard. I would need courts and a lawyer to weigh in on that, for example. So I'll leave that question unanswered. In the United Kingdom, it is very clear that there is a suitability requirement here, uh, at least if we follow the language from uh, their national government. What this led to in Canada was that the CLHIA again looked at this and said, hang on a second here, we see the trend in the United Kingdom and we don't want to have insurance regulators get too heavy handed about how they deal with our agents who are out there doing good business. And honestly, it's, I'm not trying to paint this with a, a negative brush. We just don't have the kinds of abuses in Canada that we saw in the United Kingdom or for that matter in Australia. Uh, at least in my opinion, I'm happy to hear from people who want to disagree with me here, uh, but both of those jurisdictions went through substantial changes as to how they regulated their financial services practice. And I think the CLHA, CLHIA really looked at this and said, we think that we can step in here. So they created this set of, again, guidelines, which insurance agents who deal with Canadian insurers uh, including subsidiaries active in Canada, uh, I find are generally holding up to. I think every MGA and every major insurer uh, does require that their folks create these reason why letters. So the reason why letter becomes sort of the, let's say, Canadian substitute for the uh, suitability letter that I talked about a moment ago. And we see that the reason why letter has to include uh, information about the policy has to indicate what the recommendation is, a summary of the facts and the need that would be a proper needs analysis done here, the amount of coverage and gaps in coverage for seg fund contracts, a discussion around the fee structure that is an indication that the fee you're paying for that seg fund matches up to the need you have. And the call to action, that is the idea that the client should actually acquire this policy and this would be why they should acquire this policy. The number for today's episode is seven. The number for today's episode is seven. To obtain your CE credits for listening to this episode, you'll need the color and number in order to get through the quiz. And also you'll have to pay attention to the interview. There are five questions in there and you'll want to do well on all five. Pass grade is 60%. So the place to go to do that is bccquiz.online. That's BCC is in Business Career College. So pop over to 
bccquiz.online. There's a short five-question quiz there. You should be able to do it on your mobile phone once you are parked. Then you can subscribe right then. It's pretty easy to do. We're always looking for more subscribers. I think this is a super efficient way to get your CE credits. And it's pretty common for me when I tell people about the podcast for CE credits, they say that's a great idea, but I'd still like to get those numbers up. So please pop over to bccquiz.online. 15 bucks a month will get you all the CE credits you need, including your professional responsibility credits. And we're doing two episodes a month now or one episode every two weeks. So please pop on over to bccquiz.online and subscribe. Okay, I hope you'll join us again in two weeks' time. I'm actually doing a clip show in two weeks' time. Uh, we're going to do that so we can get our professional responsibility credits out of the way. So I'll have a clip show in two weeks' time uh, for that uh, much-valued FP Canada professional responsibility credit. Thank you so much for joining us and enjoy your continued studies. There are quite a few people who help out with getting these episodes to air. Joseph Tong takes care of our editing. Maria Nguyen takes care of all of our continuing education approvals. And Sushami Parmelopaket, Ji Wu, Lisa Hoffert, and Penny Watt, my mother, make sure that we have people listening to the podcast through their marketing and sales efforts. Thank you so much. Thank you.